But before I get into the sermon, which today's title is, is Needless God, uh, and you'll see why in a minute, but first, uh, ha- I don't know if you guys have ever heard of Nintendo, the, the game company from Japan, right? I know, I know, okay, I know you guys are like, Brian, you're always talking about video games when you preach, please, but hey, this is who I am, these are the things that I got, but today is not completely, well, it's partially related to that, but, but uh, the guy who was the creator of Super Mario, his name's uh, Shigeru Miyamoto, I've got a quote from a, him up here, and it's kind of a, a sad quote, I think, uh, this is what he ends up saying, he says, I was born and raised an atheist, okay? Because I don't need God to help me finish the next Mario game, because that's what he made, was the Mario games. I don't need to give others credit for my hard work, right? And this is unfortunately the attitude of a lot of, a lot of people. Even, even us, sometimes we might believe in God, but our hearts sometimes, the way we live, is as though we don't even need him, right? It's as though, like, I don't know, like a lot of people seem fine living their lives without him, and like we can almost live as though we don't really need God in our lives, right? Even though we might you know, feel that belief. We might try our best at times, but then like the way we live our days, we don't always get involved with that. So, so I thought this is just kind of like a sad quote, right? He didn't think he needs God. And I found an even more rare quote that just came out. It's not a real quote. And it's actually from Mario. All right. Mario, Super Mario said this. That's right. The Italian plumber himself. This is what he said. He says, I was born and raised an atheist because I don't need Miyamoto to help me defeat Bowser or rescue the princess. Right? So I don't need to give anyone other, other than myself credit for, for my hard work. So I just think it's interesting, right, that Mario ended up saying this, right, because he's never seen Miyamoto, right? He doesn't know that his world's been created. He's not reading into the evidence that there's a creator of, of the Super Mario world, right? Which, by the way, Super Mario World is a really good game. But anyways, <laughs> but right, but, but like, it's the same sort of thing that Miyamoto's saying, right? Like, just because he hasn't seen his creator, he's like, I don't need, I don't need this guy. I'm good on my own. Look at all the hard work that I've done on my own. So that's, that's one of the things I want us to think about is that, right, sometimes we live as though God is needless, right, that we don't even need him in our lives. And we somehow rely on our own, right, self-sufficiency that in pride we think we've got our world together. We've done all of this by ourselves, right? We've pulled ourselves up by our own bootstraps that we've got this, right? We've figured it out on our own and, you know, sometimes maybe God helps once in a while, but... But it's mostly us that sometimes is the way that we live. So, so who is this God that we don't need? Who is this God? This is the God that we actually do desperately need, that, that Paul in Acts 17, he's proclaiming in the city of Athens, right? Because they actually had all sorts of different idols and temples and altars to different gods. And he says, listen, the God that you don't even know is the God that I'm declaring to you, right? Last week we talked about this God is the creator God, the creator of the universe. And in Acts 17, verses 24 and 25, those are the the two that I'm reading today. We covered the first half of 24 last week. It says, this is Paul introducing them to the God that loves them, right? Who loves them, came down to rescue them. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it. All right. So he's creator God. Being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples built by man. All right. Just so you know, God doesn't sleep here, right? God doesn't live just in this building, Right? God doesn't live just in the temple in Israel or, right, right, or different synagogues. or place. Like God doesn't live in temples built by man. He's the Lord of, of heaven and earth. And then Paul goes on, verse 25. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Right? He's not served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life 
and breath and everything. So God, Paul is saying, right, he's the creator of everything. He doesn't live in the little box that we want him to fit in, right? That, that God, not only does he not need our service, right, but we need him is the idea that he's presenting here. That, that God, he's saying, is not the, the God that I don't need. He's the God who has no needs and that he wants us to have relationship with him, even though we are actually not needed by God which is kind of crazy idea. So, so I'm going to delve into this idea, kind of these three points that Paul makes today. So the first thing he said was that, we, uh, that God does not live in temples built by man. Now you might be like, well, wait, Brian, wasn't there like in the Old Testament, didn't they like actually build a temple? Right? Didn't even like Moses, before they had the temple, didn't he build the tabernacle, like the kind of portable tent temple that they had for God? Right? And, and they did. But even at that time, they knew that it was insufficient to somehow house God. They recognized the absurdity of it. Here's, here's some quotes from King Solomon, the guy who built the first temple. In uh, 2 Chronicles 2.6, he says, But who is able to build him a house? Since heaven, even highest heaven, cannot contain him. Who am I to build a house for him except as a place to make offerings before him? Right? It's like I can't like, build something big enough for God. Right? I can't do something so grand that God would be somehow impressed with what I do. Right? Or this is what he says a few chapters later in Second Chronicles 6.18. He says, but will God indeed dwell on earth with man? Right? He didn't understand that. Right? He, how is that going to happen? He says, behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built? Right? Like, how am I going to fit you in here? No matter how big I make it, how am I going to fit you in this box? Right? I can't. Right? This doesn't make any sense. Right? I understand. Like, this will just at best, be a place where we can express our worship to you. And actually, what's interesting is the temple was, was built as a shadow of the things to come. All right, it's actually built as something that was pointing to what heaven is like in some ways. All right, it says this in Hebrews 8.5. It says that they, the priests, serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. All right, so it was kind of like expressing an idea of what heaven was like. So, and, and that the Old Testament, the whole system that they had, the sacrifices and everything was just a shadow of the fullness that we now experience through Jesus, right? Where, you know, previously they were trying to have any attempts they could find to, to get to God, but now God's come down, dwelled on the earth, and instead of us having to make sacrifices all the time, he was the once and for all sacrifice, right, dying on the cross that we could have relationship with him. So it was fulfilled fully in Jesus. But this is the idea, is that God doesn't fit in the box that we make for him. God doesn't fit, right, just on, oh, God, maybe just Sunday mornings. Like, that's the box I'll give you. Like, that, you're the God of Sunday mornings. Like, that's what I'll do, right? Or, or you're the God that when I need something, I'll pray to you, right? You'll be my, my vending machine God that I'll just, you know, I'll say my prayers in A17 and, and then, bam, you give me what I need. And that's, that's the God that I'll have you be for my life, right? But God doesn't fit in that box, Here's something that God declares about himself in Isaiah 66. He says, it says, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. 
So God's saying, like, listen, like, even if you were trying to somehow build a temple for me, if you were trying to build a house for me, do you understand that everything you would be showing me is stuff that I made anyway, right? You're showing me my own work. Like, I did this, right? I'm the one that did all of it. Like, like what, whatever strength or whatever abilities or talents we have that we try to show God, it's not like, wow, God, look how impressive I am. It's, it's, that, it's stuff that he's already made, that it's all his, his handiwork, that he's the one that did it. And if we were really trying to get God's attention, if we were trying to impress him, if we wanted to have relationship with him, he said, he's saying, they're like, no, no, like you can't do that through a temple. The person that he's looking for is someone who's humble, right? Someone who recognizes their need for God. That's the one that God is pursuing. Or the person that's contrite in spirit, the person who's repentant of their sin, who acknowledges the wrong that they do. Like, God, man, like, I don't know. I mess up my life bad. I make some poor choices. I'm... I'm sorry for the wrong that I do. That's that's the person that God is looking for, right? And he says, the person that trembles at his word, that recognizes the gift that we have in the written word of God, that that he's revealed himself through his son and through his word, right? That like, wow, like, all right, you say this, I'm going to take you at your word. I'm going to honor what you say, right? I'm going to believe what you say. That's the person that God is looking for and God wants to be found. I'll let you know. And what's interesting is even all of these ideas, even like Solomon saying like, you know, how is God going to dwell on the earth with man? It's interesting that we live in the time period in which he's made that possible. That we live in the era post-Jesus, right, where Jesus came, died, rose again, that, that we've been sanctified because of what Jesus has done, that we've been made righteous, that God now chooses to dwell in us, his people, that we are now the temple. So it's somehow like where they were perplexed in the Old Testament that God now chooses to dwell in us. It says this in 1 Corinthians three, sixteen. It says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Right? So somehow, right, they were trying to figure it out like, God, how are you going to live on the earth with mankind? And we end up being able to enjoy his actual presence being with us, right? That the Holy Spirit is leading us into all truth, guiding us in our lives, sanctifying us each day to be more and more like Jesus, right? That we have the privilege of God literally dwelling on earth with us, right? That's something that they couldn't figure out in the Old Testament, but we get to enjoy the, the, the fuller reality of that. So, so the next point that Paul made, so he first says, right, God's the God of heaven and all the earth, right? That he doesn't live in temples, Right? So people of Athens, you've got all these temples and all your gods and all your idols. God can't live in one of your temples, no matter how many you have. That's not where God lives, okay? That, that, that there's no way that you could fulfill that need. And then he says this in verse 25 of Acts 17, nor is he served by human hands as though he needs anything, as though he needed anything, right? That, that God is this needless God, that God is complete in himself, Right? That God is, is fully equipped, fully resourced. He has no need. He's not going to ask to borrow 20 bucks. Like, he's, he's good, right? It, it says this in, in Psalm 24, verse 1. It says that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, or everything in it. The world and those who dwell therein. Right? So, so God owns everything. He's the God of everything. Everything that was made was his. He was the one that made it. Right? So... So everything is God's. So what would we have to give him? What would we have to show him? Right? What, like, how could I serve him? 
What would that look like? What could I give him that isn't already his? Right? It's kind of like a weird, weird idea. And, th- and that's what Paul's saying is that God isn't served by our hands as though he needed anything. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't serve him. But sometimes we almost like, you know, we think like, you know, when we come to God, it's like, God, you sure are lucky that I chose to believe in you as God. I mean, you, you scored big time with me as your follower. Like, I don't know if you understand the deal that you're getting out of this. Like, the fact that I'm going to follow you, like, man, you better appreciate what's going on here, right? Like, that's sometimes the way we think. But it's like, we don't serve God or, like, give to God as though he, like, owes us anything, right? It's not like he, like, owes us big. Like, it's not, you know, like, well, I'm only going to serve God, you know, if I get a lot of credit for this, you know, if he's, he better appreciate what I'm doing because I'm, I'm so talented. Like, does he have any idea how awesome I am? Like, you know, like, that's what we might think. And, and God doesn't owe us anything. In fact, the Bible says that the only thing that God owes us, according to our own hard work, according to like our own effort, the only thing that we've earned from God is death. That's the thing that God owes us. It says this in, in Romans six twenty three: for the wages of sin, the thing that we've earned with all of our hard work and doing wrong, unfortunately, what we've earned, our paycheck at the end of the week is death. But the free gift of God is salvation, right? Eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord right? Salvation. This is why salvation can't be something that's earned by us because we we have nothing to offer God that isn't already his. Salvation can only be a gift. It's something that he gives us freely. And that's what God offers us. This is so cool that this is the way it works because I'm glad we don't have to earn our salvation uh, because I don't think we'd make it, right? Actually, the Bible makes it really clear that we wouldn't right? The thing that we would earn is, is our own death because in our own effort, in our own strength, right? In our own understanding of what's right and wrong, we, we choose wrong. We do the wrong thing. And the, the thing that we earn from God is death. But fortunately, he's, he's waived that penalty of us. God's not interested in counting the sins of the world against them anymore. That's the good news of the gospel. So like, that's, by the way, a great way to let people know like, hey, God's like wants to forgive all your parking tickets sort of thing, right? God wants to forgive everything that you've done wrong. Like you understand, like this is like a deal that he offers you, right? God's not counting your sins against you. So, so the way we do serve God is not to be done in a way as though he owes us anything. It's not to belittle him like, all right, God, I'll help you out. Like, I understand you got yourself into a jam here, Lord. Like, let me help. Let me tell you what you need to do. Like, let me come in and solve your problem, right? We're not to serve him as though he's indebted to us, okay? Now, we are supposed to serve God. This is, I mean, in the New Testament, it's that we suppose that since he gave his life for all of us, that those who live should now live for him, right? Like, we, we should live and serve God, but the way we do it is, is for his glory, and it's, it's actually not even according to our own strength. It's according to the strength that he equips us with. All right, it says, it says this in 1 Peter 4, verses 10 and 11. And this is cool. It's talking about the, the body of believers, right? The, the church, the gathering, right? Uh, that's not just, by the way, Valley Town. That's the broader, all the churches, all the Christians that are following, serving Jesus. It's talking about that as each as has received a gift, use it to serve one another, right? That God has equipped each of us with, with different gifts, Okay. Serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. 
Now, I want to point that out, that your talents, the gifts that you have, the things that God has blessed you with, those are his, right? We're good stewards of his varied grace, that, that all of the talents that we have, it's not something that we can boast of ourselves, because even those things, it says we're stewards. Steward is someone who, who manages someone else's stuff, right? God's got you here as just a manager of the time and the life and the resources that he's given you, right? That's the idea, is that that we're stewards of God's varies, varied grace. It says, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Okay, so like even when we do serve God, the way we serve isn't out of our own effort, out of our own strength or for our own credit. The way that we serve, it's by the strength that God provides. He's the one that equips us with the very ability to serve, right? He's the one that gives us, right, breath and life and everything that, that we're supposed to serve God, and he's, he's the one that receives glory as a result. And what's, what's really crazy is that even though the things that we do that are good or for God's glory right, are all pre-planned by him. They're, they're done with the life that he's given us. It, it, it's done with the strength that he's equipped us with that still God chooses to reward us when we get to heaven for those good things that we do. Even though, like, it wasn't even us in the first place. But God still wants to reward us for those things when we get there. So it's just kind of like a crazy, crazy cool thing that it's all him and he still wants to bless us as his kids. So it's really cool. So here, here's, Jesus told a parable. I've got a link to it on the bonus content in Luke 17. I'm not going to read the whole parable, but I am going to read the conclusion. Because this is just like, this is a super humbling thing to hear from Jesus. Like, I'm just going to let this thing, this sentence that Jesus said, kind of like hit us. Uh, it's, it's, it's almost unsettling. Uh, so Jesus tells this parable, and, th- and this is how he concludes it. He says, ver- Luke 17, verse 10, So you also, that's you and me, when you have done all that you were commanded, say this, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Right? It's not like when we, we serve God that we've somehow gone above and beyond. It's not like we're somehow impressing everybody. Jesus is saying, like, even if you've done everything that God asks us, right? Which I don't think any of us are even close to that, right? Uh, but even if we were to do everything, it's not like we suddenly like, wow, look at that. Man, that person is awesome. No, no, no. We're, we're, we're only doing what he's already asked us to do. It's not like we went above and beyond. We just did what he's asked us. He says like we're literally like unworthy servants in this context. Now, fortunately, I will let you know that God doesn't, he's not just looking for servants. God, Jesus calls us his friends, Okay, so I do want to let you know that. But just in terms of our attitude, in terms of our pride that we can have, right, in terms of like how we kind of feel about ourselves or might boast about ourselves of like, man, like, do you understand like what I've done for God? Like, no. We're, at the end of the day, we're unworthy servants. We've, we've only done what's been asked of us. We've only done what was expected. So when we serve God, it is, is not as though he suddenly deserve, we deserve like some tremendous favor or grace from him. It's not like he should be impressed, is the idea. Okay, that, that we're not, you know, serving God in order to, to get like, hey, like God, you should be impressed with what I do. It's just, we serve God, he equips us, we get to co-labor with God, and he's the one that gives us everything 
that we need in order to, to serve him, right? He's the one that gave us our life. He's the one that gave us the plan. He's the one that gave us the strength to make it happen. And when we do serve God, we don't serve out of a place of obligation, all right? We don't serve out of like, well, I guess I have to. You know, I guess Jesus said I should. You know, oh, I guess I will. You know, like we actually are supposed to serve God out of a, an overflow of, of joy, out of an overflow of gladness. It says this in, in Psalm 100, verse 2. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Right? That, that the idea is that it's, it's a reciprocity. It's, it's in response to the abundant love that he's shown us. Then I was just like, God, you, you've blown me away. Like, I, I can't even express how wonderful you are to us. And now we serve out of, out of response to that love. That we love him because he first loved us, right? That, that we respond with gladness out of the abundant grace that he's, he's shown us, right? So it's not like, well, I, I guess I have to. It's, it's out of gladness. It's out of joy. It's, it's sourced by that response to God's love that, that we now serve him. So, I, so I've got a couple questions that, that I'm assuming some of us might ask. I, I don't think it's wrong to ask this, these questions, um, at some point. So it's like, okay, so if God doesn't have any needs, right, we start thinking like, what does this mean? And, and so here's the first question. If God doesn't need our money, then why does he command us to give? Right? Like, I, you don't have to raise your hand if you've thought that or asked that. But like, I mean, shouldn't God be all set? Like, he's got everything. What's the problem? What, like, what's the big deal, right? Why does he need us to give? Why does he ask us to do that? Or if God doesn't need our service, why does he command us to serve? I mean, those are, those are some interesting questions. I think those are valid questions, which, by the way, if you are here and you're not a follower of Jesus, like, we encourage questions. We encourage you to ask those sorts of things, like, talk to me at the end of the gathering, shoot me an email, right, call me during the week, right? It's, it's helpful to get questions like that answered because otherwise they go unanswered and then you're, like, living your life kind of confused and unsettled or, like, I don't know, like, I'm not sure how I really feel about God. So, so... The Bible does tell us that we should give. All right? God does command his people to be generous. Right? That we should give to missions, that we should give to the poor, that we should give to, to support the gospel at our, our local church, that we, we actually go out and accomplish what God's called us to do. So God does command that. But what's interesting is it still is simultaneously true that God doesn't need what we have to give. Right? Isn't that like interesting? So like, wait, why is God interested in our money then? Well, the, the only possibility is that it's for our good that he asks us to give. Because he's not benefiting somehow from it. He isn't in need. Okay, God doesn't need what we give or how we serve, but it's for our good that he would ask us to do those things in the first place. Now, I know you're thinking like, I don't know, Brian, I don't know about that, but I'll show, I'll show it to you. It's okay. It, it's, it's for our benefit that he's actually commanded us anything in the Bible. All right? Even in the Old Testament, that, that in Deuteronomy, it says that it's for your good that he's given the law. Like, it's not like he's some jerk that's trying to restrict. You know, he's, he's, he has boundaries because it's for our good. It's for our benefit. Okay? So, so here's this idea in terms of giving, okay? Uh, right? It, how could this really be for our good? It seems like you know, what's going on here. First Timothy 6, this is what Paul writes in First Timothy 6, verse 17 uh, through 19. It says, as for the rich in this present age, okay, so the, the, he's 
Paul's writing to Timothy, a pastor of a church, and there's rich people within the church, right? There's people of multiple, right, economics there. Uh, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, right, or proud, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides everything to enjoy. Okay, so he's, he does have a command for the rich here. Don't be proud and don't hope in your riches. Verse 18, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Okay, so like, okay, well, still, how does this benefit us, right? If, if we're in that category, what, what's in it for us? Why would God be commanding us to do this if he doesn't need this to begin with? It says, verse 19, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. All right, so the benefit, okay, God's interested in a few things here. He, first of all, points out that if you're rich in this present age, that is not a reflection of your, your eternal riches. He points that out. He doesn't want us to set our hope on something that's uncertain. He doesn't want us to worship something that will be an ineffective God for us, right? And worshiping money is it's greed, right? It's, it's not going gonna, it's not gonna to be a very good God for you. It will disappoint you. I will let you know, right? He says, I'd rather have you hope in something that's certain. I'd rather have you hope in God, someone that you can rely upon. And he says that the very act of giving, the very act of being involved in generosity and ser- sharing and serving others he says, is storing up a treasure for yourself. Like God's saying, like, listen, like, by you doing this, this is for your good that this would happen, right? You're storing up a treasure for yourself and that you can take hold of what is truly life. God wants us to experience a good life, right? I don't know if you caught that, that verse in the middle there. Let's see, what was it? Yeah, verse 17, if you can go back to that, the end of that, that God richly provides us everything to enjoy, It doesn't sound like some stingy jerk that's trying to ruin your fun, right? Like God is an awesome, generous, loving God. And so when he asks us to give, it's for our benefit. It's for our good. All right. So, so, okay. So you might still be thinking like, I don't know. I'm not really sure. Like, I guess that sounds nice or whatever, but, but this is, this is the other idea is that God doesn't want us to be slaves of sin. Jesus said that, that whatever we choose to obey, we become a slave to and that greed is one of these things that, that can plague our hearts. That God wants us to be set free from idolatry, from the, the worship of money, from slavery to our own greed. Okay? So greed is a sin, and, and Jesus would want us free. And earlier in 1 Timothy 6, Paul writing, he, he actually says that it's actually a woeful thing to desire to be rich. Like it's actually an unfortunate thing if you find yourself in that situation. If pursuing money or loving money is the thing you're after, it's actually an an unfortunate situation you found yourself in. He says this, but those who desire to be rich. Notice it doesn't say those who are rich. Those who simply have the desire. This is all in your heart. You you could have zero dollars and have a huge greed problem. Okay? Like this is all in your heart. It has to do with our desires. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Man, you might be familiar with this verse, verse 10. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. 
It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So I want to point out like, okay, so if you just hear the, the concept of like, okay, so the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, you might be like, yeah, but maybe I could love money like a little bit, right? Like, I mean, it's just, it's just evil. Like it's the only person being hurt when I do something evil is God, right? Like I'm not hurting anybody else by me loving money. Like it's just a little bit of that. That's okay. But, but notice that the damage that we do is, is to ourselves. Notice the number of things that happen to us by having this pursuit to be rich, right? It says that, right, by desiring, simply desiring to be rich, right, that we have this greed issue in our heart that we fall into temptation, that we, we become ensnared by this. We're trapped, all right, that, that these desires are senseless. We'll start making decisions that don't make any sense, that have no eternal value, right, that, that, that these desires are harmful to us, that they, they plunge us into ruin, and that we are piercing ourselves through causing these, these pangs, these sharp pains. It's literally as though like this pursuit of money, it's like you're running yourself through with a sword in the process as you pursue it, right? That's what God doesn't want for us, right? So when God asks us to be generous, even though he doesn't need anything, it is only for our good or maybe for the good of those who we are generous and sharing with, right, that he would ask us to do that because he wants us to be free from any sin in our hearts, so God wants better for us. So, so that's the idea. Paul said, right, God doesn't need anything. God can't be served as though he needed anything. And the last point was that we actually need God. That we, we have this desperate need for God. This is what Paul said in Acts 17. He said, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. It sounds like we're the ones that are in need in that relationship. Like, we're the beneficiaries in that relationship. We're the ones that uh, rely on him more than he relies on us. So God himself gives life and breath and everything to us. Right? That's, that's the idea. And, and I think, like, sometimes we get this idea that this self-sufficiency issue, this pride issue that we think, I did it myself. Right? Like, maybe you're not as far as Shigeru Miyamoto was, right, with like, I don't even need God. I, I can make Mario games, right? right? No, no, but, but sometimes in our own hearts, we think like, look at what I've achieved. Look at what I've done with my life. Look what I've done for myself. And this is, this is a verse from the Old Testament. This is in Deuteronomy that warns us of that attitude. Even though that attitude might never leave our, our mouths and never may become an action, it just might be an attitude of the heart. It says, Deuteronomy eight seventeen. Beware lest you say in your heart, so no one else might ever be aware of this. And that's, what, that's what's different, by the way, a little side note right here. That's what's different, by the way, between this God that we serve and other religions. All right, other religious moral guidelines and rules, they, they can only govern action. They can only govern words. They can only say that word was wrong or that action is wrong. But God is, he actually has a guideline that goes beyond that. It goes to the heart level. He's the, he's the only one that would ever know whether we've done right or wrong in our hearts. No one else can know that. So that's how God can actually give, right, commands that point out to our need for him, our need for a savior in the way that we live in our hearts, right? So beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. Beware lest you say that in your heart, right? Beware the thinking that, that we've done it in our own effort, and in our own strength. Verse 18, he says, You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he 
who gives you the power to get wealth. Right? I'm I'm not even going to bother reading the rest of that, but I just want to point out that Right? When we're hardworking, when we put all of this effort, when we've made a career for ourselves, when we've brought our life together, right? We can't even say, I did this myself. The Bible says that God is the very one who gave your hand the power to obtain wealth. He's the one that's given us the ability to prosper. It wasn't us in our own strength. Right? Even though it's good to be a hard worker, right? It's good to do those things, but it's also necessary that we recognize that we shouldn't be proud or, or just be thinking like we are somehow self-sufficient, that we don't even need God in our lives. Because the reality is that we desperately need God. The, the Bible actually teaches that anything that we do apart from him will amount to nothing. And I know like that doesn't even make sense. It's like, no, no, no like I, people do a lot of things without God all day long. But when it comes to us entering into eternity, Anything that we did apart from God is, is just consumed. It's, it's just burned up. It doesn't even enter into the history of eternity. Anything we do apart from God has no zero eternal value, right? It's, it's nothing. The only things that will be remembered in eternity are those things that we did with right motive and relying on God to lead us. Okay, like that's it. Like, so we literally cannot accomplish anything that will have any permanent value without him. I've got a a quote from Francis Chan here. Uh, He's a cool guy. I think we've got one of his books in the back there. Um, So he's this cool guy. He says this, The irony is that while God doesn't need us, but still wants us, we desperately need God, but don't really want him most of the time. Like That's just kind of like an unusual thing about the relationship. Like we view it as an inconvenience that God wants to be involved in our lives sometimes, right? It's like, you know, he, he doesn't even need us and he loves us so much and he wants to be with, with each of us, right? It's not like God was like thinking like, I, you know what I would like? I would like it if there'd be like crowds of people that would gather on weekends just to like think about me. No, no, no. God wants relationship with individuals, right? God wants you. God wants to know you, right? And that we We sometimes don't want him, even though we actually are the ones in the relationship that desperately need him. And so so sometimes I think this attitude, like I said, this isn't saying like, oh, this is for people who don't believe in Jesus. No, this is for people who do. That we sometimes have this attitude of like, you know, I think I'm good. Like we're living our lives sometimes as though God doesn't exist. And I think that some of this is, it's exposed in things that aren't necessarily obvious. All right, in, in some little subtle things like just simply living each day as though we don't need God. Even though we might, we might know that intellectually, we might right, say that, we might practice that sometimes, but a lot of times we can just live as though we don't need God on any given day. Right? That's a subtlety, that's an exposure of this issue in our hearts. Or, or here's one that I know I've done, uh, not praying. Like somehow thinking like, no, I've got this. It's my own creativity, my own talent, you know, my own strength. Like, I'm, I'm just going to make today happen. Like, this is good. I've, I've got this figured out. And if I get stuck, then maybe then I'll talk to God about it. But, but no, no, no. Like, by not praying, it's evidence of the fact that we actually don't think we need him. Right? It points to that. Or, or the idea of, like, not reading or listening to his word, the Bible, right? Not thinking, like, you know, like, no, nah, I think I'm just going to rely on my own 
intellect. I've got this figured out. I'll trust in my own wisdom, my own understanding. But when God has actually made wisdom available to us, that he has things that would speak to our lives regarding right, what direction we should take and what we should do and what is going to be most beneficial for us. And sometimes we live as though like, I don't know, I think I'm, I'm just going to try things my way for a while. I'm just going to, you know, my own understanding. Right? But that's not actually the case. Or, or, or sometimes we, we might live as though we don't have a need for one another. Okay, that we don't, you know, we might live as though like, you know, like, I don't know, I don't, I don't think I'm, you know, I'm not going to participate in going to church or going to a missional community or being involved or plugging in in other churches, right? That, that God has actually designed us with an interdependency with one another. Okay, where I've got it actually written, I think, on the front of the bulletin talking about just that, that we need each other. That's the way that God's designed the, the church. The church is the people, by the way. It's not the building. But we have a need for each other. We, we desperately need you. Or whatever local church God's called you to, that's where you are desperately needed. That's what the Bible teaches. That when, and, and, then, and then you actually need collectively us. It's not like you guys need Brian. It's that we need each other. All right, that God has given gifts to each of us that we're able to serve one another with, empowered by his strength. That we need each other. The Bible says that when one member suffers, that the whole body suffers. So we actually need each other. And I know sometimes, like I've, I've been there at seasons in my life, like, no, nah, I think I'm, I'm good. You know, so we can live as though we don't need God or we don't need each other when God has made it clear that we actually desperately need him. So let's, as, as the worship team comes up, I've got one more verse I want to point out. And it's uh, in Psalm 150, verse 6. I think it's the last verse in Psalms, actually. It says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Right? Pray, praise the Lord, right? That let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Now, how could God make a declaration like that? Why would that make sense? It's because what Paul was saying, that God's the one that gave us breath. That God's the very one that gave us life. And right, we suppose that since one has died for all, that we now who live should live for him. Right, that God has given us all things, right, for our enjoyment, like it said in 1 Timothy 6, but, but for his glory. Right, that we live our lives now for him. That, that everything that we have that God's given us, we should now re- return, reciprocate, and live for him. Right, so... so regardless of, of where we are today, right, where right, the word of God convicts our hearts, points us out, out things to us like, man, like, man, that's something where I've just been living as though like I don't even need God. You know, I've been living that way, that we might need to spend some time just like before God, just praying and just, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I've done this. I'm sorry I live that way. I'm sorry for that attitude in my heart that even though no one else may ever have known, that it's been an attitude maybe in my heart that I need to turn from, all right, repent of. And that then we can this morning, during these last two songs, we can praise God with the breath that he's given us. Right? We can give glory to God with the life that he's given us. That we can, right, be thankful for the salvation, the eternal life that he's given us. And spend this finite, short life that we have for his glory, for his kingdom. And I know, like, this is how crazy we are. Here's another thing we think. We think, like... Man, that sounds like that's going to be a really boring life for me if I have to just live my life for God. That Man, it really saps the fun out of my life. God, you're such a wet blanket, right? Like, but no, no, no. Like, the most fulfilling life 
that you can have is the life that God has called you to have. And the life that will have the most eternal value will be the life in which you're walking out the steps that God's called you to walk in. Yes. Right? That, like, that's the most satisfaction you can have.